I am sure most of you uh, remember a very stirring image that occurred September 14, 2001. And that's not a quiz. Where were you September 14, 2001? You'll remember it because of what happened in the aftermath of 9-11. A very traumatic experience for the entire nation as we saw buildings fall and crumble under terrorist attack, as we saw uh, firemen uh, rush into buildings to save lives, and of course some of them lose theirs. We saw the massive rubble, which was the result of the crashing and tumbling downs of a series of buildings in New York City. The stirring image was not those. Those were horrible. The stirring image, however, was the image of our president when he went to meet uh, the firemen and the rescue workers at Ground Zero. It was very interesting. It was held live on TV, and as the president walked around and shook hands and encouraged people, he finally ended up in a symbolic place. It was the top of a burnt-out fire truck. And there on top of that fire truck, he stood next to one of the New York City firemen, and he put his left arm around the fireman, and in his right hand he picked up a bullhorn, and he began to speak to the rescue workers, to thank them for their service. And as he began his uh, stump speech there, or his time of encouragement for these rescue workers, as he began to talk, one of the firemen uh, shouted out, I can't hear you. And what I believe was a very impromptu response, the president said, I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knocked these buildings down will soon hear you. And it wasn't scripted at all, but the firemen began to shout out spontaneously, USA, USA, USA. And the whole crowd erupted with patriotic fervor. And you couldn't have helped it of being an American, watching that very stirring and symbolic moment, wherever you were, whatever your opinions are about the entire thing that happened, you could not help but feel like that those chanting firemen represented your patriotism, your unity as a people who felt like they had been attacked wrongly. And the resolve to rise up from the ashes and rebuild our country, rebuild a sense of security and confidence. You couldn't help but feel like you were a part of something larger. People were with you in this love for our country. You see, unity matters, whether it's in terms of uh, patriotism, unity matters in terms of families and institutions and businesses, and unity matters in the church. Unity is essential for the church. It is part of a healthy church life that the people of God, in particular churches, are unified in mind and spirit and purpose and doctrine. Without that, the church is full of infighting and strife and becomes useless in terms of service for Jesus Christ. And Paul, knowing that, uh, jumps right in this letter in the midst of a very precarious situation at Corinth a very uh, difficult, sticky situation where there are all kinds of doctrinal problems and moral problems. He begins his admonition to the Corinthians with the call for unity. He says in verse 10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you. That's what I want us to look at this morning. Uh, the unity which Paul commands the church 
here to fulfill. That we as God's people are to be united in doctrine and in application and in love for each other. Now as we begin to look at that command, I want us to set it within the flow of the context. And I hope your Bibles are open so you can see this for yourself. But Paul does not jump into this letter by preaching law. And make no mistake about it, the command to unity, the command to agree in mind and purpose and doctrine and application and morality is law. But he doesn't begin with law, he begins with gospel. You remember last week as we began our introduction to this great book of Corinthians, we noticed that the Apostle Paul said eight things about these Corinthians. Eight things that marked out the graciousness of God's operations among them. And the very first thing that he said unto them as he addressed these Corinthians is that they were sanctified. In verse 2 he said to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And we said the sanctification can only have meaning against the backdrop of sin. The division that sin brings, the guilt that sin brings, the brokenness that sin brings, the corruption of our life that sin brings, sanctification can only make sense within that context. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that sin has been dealt with. The guilt of sin has been taken care of the blood of Jesus. The corruption of sin has been taken care of through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit as he applies the grace of Christ to us. The division that was between us and God the Father because of our sins has been dealt with. We are sanctified, he says. And then after that, he says, secondly, that we are saints by calling. He says, you're sanctified not because of your works. You're sanctified not because of the things that you have done, your good intentions, your desires, your aspirations. He says, you're saints by calling. That God in His grace has sovereignly called you into this relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, thirdly, that they're unified with the broader church. He says, they are saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is just a shorthand expression of Paul's to refer to the church gathered for worship. He says you are united not just among yourselves but with the broader church as you hold a common agreement in faith, as you have a common focus on the Lord Jesus, as you have common practices, you are united with all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in every place. In other words, they've been called into a body, into the visible church. He says, fourthly, in verse 5, that they have been enriched in every gift. They're not lacking anything. He says, in everything you were enriched in him, in speech and knowledge, or a better translation would be, in doctrine and application. He says, you've been thoroughly catechized, you've been thoroughly instructed in the faith, and by the grace of God, not only do you know the truth, but you also, through the Spirit's work, have a sense of insight into its application to church life and to yourselves. That's grace, he says. He says, the gospel in verse 6 has been confirmed among them uh, by signs and wonders and special workings of the Holy Spirit and miracles. The truth of the gospel has been confirmed unto them mentally and spiritually so that they are able to believe it and to live confidently based upon that truth. In verse 6 and 7, he talks about how they're waiting now. They're waiting eagerly for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Another indication of change. He said last week that the position of 
unbelievers is not the posture of waiting. The position of unbelievers is not looking to the, to the next life, to the afterworld, to heaven for their uh, source of joy and happiness. That the world around us is, is looking towards what this world can offer in terms of happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment. He says the orientation now of these Christians is different. They're not looking to this life to uh, fill them with joy. They're looking to Christ and to his return. Seventhly, he says of them, they, they are assured in the preservation of their faith. Verse 8 says uh, that God will confirm them to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's another way of speaking about the promise of the preservation of the saints and salvation. The grace of God to you is that as you come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, that he upholds you and sustains you in the grace of salvation, and that no one will be lost. And in fact, that there are times when, when Christians and believers stray from Jesus Christ, and the images we have in the Bible of Jesus Christ as the Good Shepherd, is that he leaves the ninety and nine, and he goes after the one strayed to deliver them back into the fold. We have a promise of preservation. That's grace to us. We're not only saved by grace, but we're preserved in our salvation by grace. Then nine, and this is where our text sort of begins to pivot into what I want to talk about this morning as Paul unfolds it in verse 10. He says, you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. You're called. Again, another accent on the sovereignty of God and salvation. By the way, you can't miss it. You can't miss the accent on the sovereignty of God and calling his people to himself and saving them. He says you've been called into fellowship. That is really the, the pinnacle of all blessings. Is that you've been united to Jesus Christ because every grace is in Christ. All grace is in Christ. And everything that you need then for uh, life and salvation and the Christian faith and eternal life, and everything is found in Christ. So in other words, to be saying to be called into fellowship with Christ is to say that you have been called into uh, the point of access to everything that you possibly could need. Now, eight ways here, the Apostle uh, Paul confirms to these Corinthians that he... Uh, has proclaimed to them the message of grace, that they believe unto salvation by grace. He re-emphasizes that here to these Christians. And we said that that's really kind of interesting as you look at the rest of the book of Corinthians. If you would have stopped right there, you would never have guessed the kinds of things that Paul would say to these people because their lives were very messed up. Everything from incest to temple prostitution to unspeakable disorder and worship. We're amazed here. Apostle Paul begins as he begins this letter to the Corinthians, accenting grace. What God has done. And I want us to begin with that accent this morning as we look to what God commands in verse 10. Everything that Paul is going to command us as a church to be begins by the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, the motive for fulfilling this command here that we all agree is really found in the gospel. 
You see, it's really rather unnatural for us as believers to want to love each other. Because we're sinful. What's really natural for us is to look out for ourselves only, to be concerned about our own self-interest, to not be all that absorbed and concerned with the problems of people around us, because we're really rather selfish people in our sinfulness. We like us. We like our own desires. We like our own goals. We like our own needs. And we are constantly absorbed in them in the sense that it's okay that we have a concern for ourselves. But it cannot end there. And what Paul is doing by setting up this exhortation with this review of the gospel is he's saying, this is the only way you're going to be able to fulfill this command to agree and to get along and to be one and to uh, enhance the fellowship of your church is that you understand yourself as someone who is in Christ. And because now you're in Christ, because of what he has done, your life has to change. You have to stop being self-centered and self-interested and self-absorbed. And you have to now have a concern for your neighbor. And so this context is very important for us to understand verse 10 and following. But it's this last thing that we read, this last mark of the grace that's been bestowed upon them, that also is a very important contextual background of verse 10. He says, you've been called into fellowship. You see, what Paul is going to work out now in the following verses is the implication of verse 9. That the climax of spiritual grace unto us is that we have been united into fellowship with Christ. There is a unity between us and Christ now. And that commitment, that, that thing that has happened to us, that there is now fellowship between us and Christ, must work its way out. In the body of the church. As all the believers are united in Jesus Christ and enjoy fellowship with him. So they must express that towards each other now in his church. You see, to live in strife and quarreling and in broken fellowship with your brothers and sisters in the Lord is to say that Christ is divided and broken up into pieces. And that he doesn't really heal, that he doesn't really mend, that he doesn't really restore, that he doesn't really do anything by his grace. And that's what Paul's going to say. It's to distort the message of the gospel to live in disunity in his church. With that backdrop now, we jump into the command here of verse 10. I hope your Bibles are open so you see it for yourselves. He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree there be no divisions, that you be made complete of the same mind and the same judgment. Let's unfold that. And this is the command of the church. First of all, that you all agree. Literally in the original it says that you all say the same things. You all say the same things. And you really can't say the same things unless you're on the same page conceptually and intellectually. You can't. There can be no agreement when people don't know how they think about things. So he says, you should all say the same things. And then he says, there should be no divisions. And that word literally means tears. There be no fractures or tears among you. We get a, a sense of what this is about. I won't have you turn there, but 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, Paul uses that same word. And he admonishes the Corinthians 
When he says, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions that exist among you. And the divisions that he is talking about there are divisions in practice. He specifically addresses their practice of the Lord's Supper. And uh, what he says there is that some come to the Lord's Supper and drink excessively and get drunk and eat up all the food, while some have nothing. And that makes sense most likely in terms of the structure of the first meeting houses of Christians, which were homes. And they were probably the homes of the wealthy. And what we know of the architecture, uh, particularly in Corinth, is that wealthy people had an inner circle inside their house where uh, you would gather for social gatherings and events. And then outside of that wall would be a large area where other people who were of less significance could be. And it's most likely that the people who were wealthy, who knew each other, who had bonded in relationships and so forth because of business or whatever, met inside and enjoyed the feast while the, uh, the servants and the slaves and the lower class were outside looking in. And so on one hand there was a party on the inside and there were all these people who were on the outside looking in. And Paul says that's, that's a division that ought not to be happening in the church. There shouldn't be this social status classification of individual uh, people according to social status and economic status and power status. There was division in practice. We also know there was division in doctrine. In verse 25 of chapter 12, we're told that uh, there was division over the use of spiritual gifts. And it seems that the Corinthians exalted some spiritual gifts over others. And the people who excelled at speaking in tongues, for instance, uh, were thought to have reached and attained a higher degree of spirituality and therefore were better than people around them. And they oppressed each other over the kinds of gifts that they had and utilized. And so the fracture was about doctrine. The fracture in the church was about practice. And so the Apostle Paul says there to be uh, agreement and there to be no divisions. And he says you are to be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. In the same mind, the same way of thinking. There to be the same way of thinking. We know what he means by that word and the way he's used it in other places. For instance, Colossians 1.21 says, that unbelievers are hostile in mind towards God. Paul says that unbelievers are united in a common idea. They hate God. They're hostile to Him. They are actively engaged in war and opposition against God. And we get from that word there the same idea that's being indicated here in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Be of the same mind. Be of the same idea have the same doctrinal convictions, have the same common commitments to truth. So as you piece all of that together here in verse 10, you begin to see the problem that's in the church. There are factions and there are divisions in the church here based upon what they believe and how they practice those. And Paul says that must stop. That absolutely must stop. He says that cannot continue any longer. Paul is not giving a suggestion. He's not saying, if you would like to have the kind of church where people smile 
and greet each other and love each other and pray for each other and build each other up and serve each other. And as a useful church, we're serving Jesus Christ. It's not as if you say, try plan A. Try unity. But you can also go ahead and be unloving and mean-spirited and gossipy and tear each other down. There's, there, there's, no, there's no option that's given here. Churches must be united in what they believe and how they apply it. It's a command. And the church that is not striving for that is a church that's in sin. And it's a church that will be useless for serving Christ. A church that refuses to heed the admonition to unity in doctrine and application will be a church that is useless for serving Jesus Christ. Kind of like the shopping carts I always get when I go to the grocery store. They either wobble and go offline, or it seems more often than not I get the cart that has the wheel on the front corner that constantly turns in circles like this as I go through the store. It's useless. And that's the way the church is when it's not of the same mind. It's like that shopping cart that, that has a good idea, has the right plans, it has the right ideas, the right strategies, the right techniques, and then it starts off, and next thing you know, it splices to the right and the left and comes back in another circle. And all it does is come back over and over and over again to party division and strife. And believe me, the kinds of things that church people can argue about are sometimes the most stupid, ridiculous things in the world. Everything from the carpet to the paint on the wall to the shrubs in the parking lot. To things that go on in worship. I'm just going to stick it in your mind right now. And we'll come back to it later. We can't be that way here. We can't be that way here. We have to be united in doctrine and in practice. Or we will be of no use to Jesus Christ. And that means then that if this is the key to being useful in service for Christ, unity and doctrine and application, then that means that each and every person here that is a member of this church needs to feel obligated in and of themselves to do everything they can to promote and enhance the unity of the church. We are as strong as our weakest link. That's the facts. We are as strong as a church as the weakest link. And so if we all are not united and galvanized around this command to be of the same mind in doctrine and application, we will be useless. Why does Paul hit this so hard here? Well, look at verse 11. Now we have the reason for why this command is coming into the picture here at all. He says, right after he has explained... The command, he says, for. Verse 11, I hope that's the first word in your translation. I'm always stopping on fours, therefores, consequentlys, and becauses. Because they're very important. They give us an indication of why 
The apostles are saying what they're saying. Here the apostle Paul is explaining why he has just commanded them to unity in doctrine and practice. He says, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people. There's strife among you. So there Paul lets the cat out of the bag, as it were. He says, we've got a problem in the church, and I know there's a problem in our church because Chloe told me so. One of the ladies in the church must have been a real godly, wonderful woman. She says, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. And whoever Chloe is, we don't know. All that we know is that she must have been a very distinguished lady in the church because all Paul has to do is say, Chloe said so. And that settles it. Everybody in the church must have known her. Everybody in the church must have known her and must have at least respected her as well as somebody who cared about truth and somebody who was in the know and somebody who was desirous of real change in the church. He says, she informed me. And notice here he does not say that she was gossiping. She didn't have uh, ulterior motives. She informed the Apostle Paul. She reported the facts. That's how you could translate this word. She reported the facts to Paul. And the fact that she reported to Paul is that there are quarrels among you. And that word would be better translated strife. And believe me, strife is a very ugly word. It sounds ugly. Eridus. Eridus. He says there is strife. It's the same word that's used in Romans 1.29 to describe the kind of attitude and mindset of people who God has cast over to a reprobate frame of mind. It is the same word that's used in Romans chapter 13, 13 to describe the behavior of unbelievers towards each other. It's strife. It is the same word that's used in Galatians 2.20 to describe the works of the flesh. Strife. Same word that's used in Titus 3.9 to describe the, the attitudes that destroy the church. Strife. And Paul says, there's strife among you. And I know there is because... Chloe told me. And it's not just that Chloe said there's strife in the church. She said what the strife was. Look at verse 12. He says, now I mean this. See that? Paul is saying, it's not just strife, and you guys need to figure out what the problem is. No, he says, this is the problem. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. I am of Paulus. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. There's factions in the church. There's factions in the church. Uh, There are leaders within the church who are lining up behind their particular favorite apostolic superhero. And, And some of the leaders said, well, I'm of Paul. I am of the party of Paul. It was natural for people, I suppose, to be of Paul, because Paul was the founding pastor of this church. He came into the church, he preached the gospel, he suffered, he labored, he was patient with them, he taught them the gospel for over a year and a half. It would be natural for some people in the church to say, I have a particular pastoral relationship to Paul, and I am on Paul's side. Then some said, I'm of Cephas, and that means the apostle Peter. And it's kind of fascinating that they say they're of Cephas because we don't really know much of Cephas' activity in Corinth. In fact, we know very little of Peter's activity after the midpoint of the book of Acts. He almost disappears. The last time we see Peter 
in the New Testament, outside of Galatians and an argument that he's having with the Apostle Paul, is in Acts 12, where he fled Jerusalem because of persecution by Herod. It's as if he just dropped off the map. But we do have one reference to Peter outside of that, and that's here in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. And there the Apostle Paul says uh, that Peter led around a wife. <laughs> he led around a wife. And he said, in other words, it's not wrong for pastors to be married. That was Paul's point. So we would assume from that remark that Peter had probably been in Corinth because he refers to a fact that they were aware of, that Peter had a wife. So Peter probably ministered for a minimal amount of time in Corinth, enough time for people to say, well, I'm of Cephas. Then he says that others were saying, I am of Apollos. Apollos had uh, been a very powerful preacher in Corinth. We're told that he powerfully refuted the Jews publicly. Powerfully. He did it to an extreme degree. He exposed them as hypocrites and ignorant of the scriptures. He refuted that. He, has, he engaged with debate among them. And it demonstrated that his arguments from scripture were valid and theirs were invalid. He was a man of enormous learning and intellect. He was from Alexandria. It's one of the great centers of culture and education in the ancient world. He was a man who was eloquent in speech, the kind of person that a Corinthian would like. Somebody who was schooled in rhetoric, who had tremendous rhetorical skills and abilities, one of the most prized qualities and characteristics of, a, of an ancient Corinthian. And so in a sense we can understand that, that Apollos would begin to be somebody that the people of God would look to for leadership. But, but then Paul says something here that is really strange to our hearing. He says that some are of Christ. Notice how he puts Christ on a continuum with all of these people, with Paul, with Peter, and with Apollos, and another person saying over here, I'm of Christ. But as you see Paul unfold the thought here, uh, this is the idea that we get, that each of the leaders identified with their particular apostolic superhero not because of a purpose of unity or authority, but because they were trying to make a claim about their, uh, their representative was superior to everybody else's. And it just led to confusion and chaos, and, and the church was deeply divided over this strategy of the leaders of the church. So we have four camps of leaders within the church, and all of them pretending to say that their apostle or their preacher had some unique insight into the word, which was better and more superior to everyone else's. And so if you really want to know the deep things of Jesus, you've got to line up behind Apollos. If you really want some super spiritual wisdom, you've got to line up behind Apollos. If you want just dry doctrine, you can line up behind Paul. If you want practical Christianity, you can line up behind Peter. And if you like deep mystical insights and good feelings, you can line up behind Jesus. It gave the impression that the church was divided, that there was no objective standard for measuring truth, that you could just be of one particular group or another, and that one was better than another. You see, there was no authority system in the church. It was breaking down because there was division over who was the source of truth. 
the church was broken and divided was not of the same mind and of the same opinion. So Paul says to them, brothers, agree. Brothers, agree. How do we resolve this? Well, Paul gives us uh, the entry point into the resolution in verse 13. He says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see what's implied here in this, and in the command not uh, to be broken up. What's implied here is that you don't rally around ministers. You rally around Christ and His truth. You don't rally around ministers. The one sure way to destroy the unity and the fellowship of the church is for people to rally around men. To rally around their favorite pastors. That's a real problem today in the church is that uh, what is being set up is a form of church which is about uh, fostering and nurturing disciple-teacher relationships among preachers. Some are very skilled and some very adept and some very culturally aware and some who have large radio ministries and television ministries and write lots and lots of books and are sold by the millions and millions who have big churches and great ideas. You see, people are being led to believe that what we do is we rally around particular men. What Paul says here is if you have that mentality, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, I'm of Paul, that Christ now is divided. You see, what he's getting at is the way to unity in the church is seeing that unity is in Christ. We cannot have anybody else we look to. We cannot have anybody we follow. We cannot even, even if we like the pastor and he's got a great personality and a great wit and great rhetorical skills and all that, we can't unite around him. We cannot be servants of him, disciples of him. He says the key here to unity in the church is to be united in Christ and to follow Christ and Christ alone. So what is the key to fellowship and unity in the church? It's the preaching of the gospel. It's the preaching of Christ and the, the word of Christ. That's what unites. You say, how do we contribute to the unity of our particular church this morning? And the answer to that is, you submit to the word of God as it is accurately proclaimed from the scripture. That's how unity begins in a church. You submit to the word about Jesus Christ as it is accurately proclaimed in the scriptures. Paul doesn't spell it out here, but he spells it out clear enough in Ephesians chapter 4. He spells it out clear enough in Ephesians chapter 4. When he says that Jesus ascended into heaven, verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Bad translation, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. No. That's not what it says. It says for constituting the saints. Bad translation. I don't usually have to correct the NAS, but I do there. It's not for the equipping, it's for the constituting, it's for the making whole of the saints. And that happens through the word unfolded and preached. The only way we can have unity in Christ, first of all, is that 
if the ministry of the word is expository in nature, unfolding the word of Christ from the scriptures, and the people of God listen to that, believe it, and then submit to it. One of your obligations is for promoting the unity of this church is to listen to the word, to evaluate it according to the scriptures it's proclaimed, believe it, and submit to it. Secondly, the Apostle Paul gives us some insight into resolving this problem by telling the church that is divided up among these camps to evaluate their ideology to see if it undermines their doctrine. Evaluate their ideology to see if it undermines their doctrine. It's really significant how Paul addresses this problem here of people saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, and I am of Christ. He says, has Christ been divided? Has Paul been crucified for you? You see, what Paul has done is he said, the implication of you lining up behind Apollos or Paul or Cephas is that you are saying by what you are doing that Jesus didn't die for you. That's how serious it is to organize behind particular charismatic leaders and say, I'm of them. To see your identity wrapped up around the preacher of the word. He says, that is to say that Christ is not the one who is responsible for your salvation. Now that is a powerful rhetorical point because the Apostle Paul could have simply said, stop it. He could have simply said, knock it off. But he didn't do that. He could have said, stop doing this. It's tearing the church apart. Stop lining up behind me. Or Apollos. But he didn't say that. He says, if you do that, what you are saying is, Jesus did not die for you. But Paul did. Apollos died for you. Not Jesus. Peter died for you. Not Jesus. You see what he's doing? He's getting them to think through the logical implications of their position. And he says, your ideology, your lining up behind Apollos, your lining up behind Peter or Paul or whoever, is undermining the system of faith. It's undermining what is absolutely clear in Scripture, that Jesus alone is Savior. Now that's important for us to get here. Because Paul is setting forth a principle that it is fair to attack somebody's beliefs or practices by comparing it to other parts of clear truth to see how that would undermine doctrine. In other words, what he says, if you believe something, you better be careful to see if that belief is going to undermine the truth of God's word. You see, we better be very careful to acquire new doctrines and new practices. We better be very careful. Some people seem to, I think it's kind of exciting. The same old truths after a while seem to get stale. At first it was so exciting to learn about the truth. And then two, three years into the program, it just seemed to lose its edge. So the idea is we go in search of new doctrines to hopefully get that same fire back within us. 
What Paul says, when you do that, you better be very careful to evaluate that truth to see whether it undermines the clear teaching of God's Word. Because if it does, you better abandon it right now. Because all it will do is sow discord and disunity in the church. And it may even end up undermining your own faith in Christ. Test positions. Test practices. Test theology by its implications. Will this undermine what I know to be absolutely true? The third thing that resolves the division in the church, as we bring our message to conclusion this morning, the third thing that resolves division in the church is confrontation. You see, Paul risks a huge church fight here. And he risks, really, Chloe's reputation by hanging her out in front of the whole church and saying, she's the one who did this. She's the one who told me. So if you have any complaints, go take it to Chloe. Very dangerous, in a sense, what Paul is doing here. But what he does here is very important. He said, this is somebody who is at least so concerned about the division and the disunity in the church that she's standing up for it now by going to tell the elders of the church. This is somebody who was so passionate about the church, somebody who loved Jesus Christ and his church so much that she was willing to risk her reputation by taking this information to the elders and saying, please help us. The first thing I think we learned from that is that all of us ought to really hate disunity and division in the church. All of us ought to really hate to see strife in the church. We shouldn't be the kind of people who like to turn the church into a debating club. Just endless debates, endless debates, endless division, endless argument. Yet there are some people who just seem to like to see the church constantly at fights, at war. But you know what? Strife can kill a church. Strife can kill a church. What Paul describes here is not something that is incomprehensible to us. I think all of us have seen factions develop in a church that's full of strife. You have one faction over here who's behind this elder. You have one faction over here who's behind this elder. You have one faction over here who's behind this pastor. And you have one faction over here who's behind the past pastor. There's all these divisions going on in the church, and and they're always stirring up problems. There's always people out there, and sometimes I believe it's a small majority within the church. There's a small amount, but those people seem for some reason to enjoy people always being at odds. And the moment controversy dies down, the moment it just seems like everything has been resolved, and people are finally back on the same page again, there are some people who just love to see strife, so they bring back in... A new controversy, because controversy and strife to them is like an old shoe. And they enjoy it. We ought to be the kind of people who hate to see strife. That's what Paul is saying when he calls us to unity. We should be the kind of people who hate to see strife. And flowing out of that hatred to see strife, we ought to be the kind of people who confront it. And this is where it begets real applicable to you this morning. You should hate strife so much in the church 
You should hate to see division so much in the church that you will take it upon yourself when you see it and when you hear of it to go confront it. You cannot be a bystander. You cannot be a seat sitter. You cannot be somebody who watches from the balcony and say, yeah, I really am torn up about that, and I think I'll just pray about it today. Well, you may pray about it today, but if it keeps going on, your responsibility is to not look the other way anymore. It's to engage it and confront it and to go to individuals who are involved in it and tell them that the Word of God forbids strife. You see... It begins with you. Resolving disunity in the church begins with you as an individual feeling the obligation to confront strife and to deal with it. And when you hear it, your job is to go say, brother or sister, Paul says, there ought to be agreement. There ought not to be divisions. You are to be the same mind. Now that might mean that you have to open up your Bible and explain to them why what's going on is right. Or maybe something that's going on is wrong. And so now together you talk about it. And now we go to the elders and we say, you know what, this is wrong. It's out of accord with the Word of God. But we deal with things in a biblical and predictable, reliable way as Jesus has told us. When there is a problem, you go to the individual and you confront them one-on-one. And you say, here is what I have against you. And you don't tell anybody else about it. If you can't resolve it, you take a second person. So that in the mouth of two witnesses, every word is established. And finally, if they don't listen, you take it to the elders. That's what Chloe did. I do not believe that Chloe just went off all on her own without trying to resolve it in a biblical fashion. But finally, she could not resolve it. And you know one reason why people won't do this? Is because... No one likes a snitch. You learn from the time you're a little kid that no one likes tattletales. But I've got to tell you this morning, when you know that people are running around causing division and strife and petty bickering and unbiblical differences and factions and neighborly love, and you see it going on, you know it's there. You're not being a snitch if you go deal with it. You're being Christ-like. Paul calls upon us to do this morning is to work at the unity of the church. One, by rallying around truth in Christ as it is unfolded in the scriptures rather than around particular individuals. Secondly, he calls upon us to enhance truth by understanding the implications of our doctrine. And thirdly, he calls upon us to work for truth in our midst by confronting strife when we see it. That way, we'll be building up the church and uniting it. Why should we care so much? It's the last thing I want to ask you. Why should we care so much? After all, we only see each other, most of us, on Sundays. Why should we care so much? You know, sometimes people have that attitude. It's just easier to forget about it. It's easier not to deal with it. I only sit here on an hour or two on a Sunday morning. You know, after all, that person, they're just chronically negative anyway. Why should I deal with it? Why should we care? Well, the reason why is because a truth that is not, a church that is not unified 
is a useless church. It's a useless church for Christ. So you have to ask the question this morning. What kind of a church do you want to be a part of? Why are you here? I know why I'm here. And I know why a great many of you are here. Because when we began this church plant, we agreed that the reason why we wanted to be here was to be a kingdom building church. To reach people in order that we would reach people. To build a church that we may plant other churches. And I'm going to tell you this morning, you cannot do that if you're a church that's divided and filled with strife. Christ is not divided, and he will not be mocked. And what he calls upon us this morning is to agree to be of the same mind, to hold the same truth that is revealed in scriptures, and to be consistent in its application. When we do that, God is honored. And secondly, Christ will use us for his glory to build his kingdom. And I pray that is the aim of your heart. Let's pray.